For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Okay. Hi, everybody. Um, can you hear me okay in online dimension? Yes? Okay. Great. Uh, so tonight, I thought I would... Well, first, I want to thank Tygen for the opportunity to speak tonight. Um, I wanted to just celebrate... Uh, I wanted to celebrate the Avatamsaka Sutra. Um where to start with that? Uh, so, um, one of the things that I really liked about Buddhism, uh, about Zen, when I first started becoming interested in it, uh, was that there wasn't really a single text that was the, you know, the the source of all the truth or the the definitive statement of what you know all the important rules and uh and theories and claims are of the of the practice and that in uh, buddhism and in zen in particular we have this enormous gift of there being hundreds thousands of books that you can uh make friends with that have been around, you know, for some of them thousands of years, and some of them uh, were probably written yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that you're, you're, there's something that that connects all of them as being part of the same practice. But there's so many textual supports to. Um, provide for you the um, the support that you need for your for your practice uh, so uh, the Abhitam Saka Sutra is not like the the single sutra of Buddhism or Zen or anything like that there's uh, many different uh, um, sutras what I think sets it apart, though, is it's it's unique for a couple reasons. Oh, thank you. Let's be mindful of the time. A couple of things set it apart. Um, so it's uh, it's thirty nine chapters long, uh, and in the version that we read here at the temple, it's about sixteen hundred pages. It's it's a big book, and um, we've been reading it once a once a month in uh, in a, uh, as a, like a special program, and we're on page like nine hundred and twenty something like that, and we've been reading it for about three years, so uh, it it's. Um, doesn't really feel like it really ends ever. Uh, 
So that's that's the first thing that's unique about it, about it which is also really mind-boggling when you think about how, how old it is. Uh, it's Nobody really quite knows exactly when and who wrote this down. Um, it's there, There's a couple different theories about it. It, it uh, the, the most like logical academic approach to it is that probably a couple different uh, um, monks in India uh, with some time on their hands uh, between the, the first and fourth centuries in, in India wrote it down probably, but I think it's probably possible that in the translations that happened in China along the way that things were added and or subtracted and it's, it's the version that we have here is probably a compilation of a couple different places and, uh, and, and times, which also feels amazing to think about if that's the case, because it feels so uniform <coughs> when you're reading it. It feels, it doesn't feel like a compilation of some kind. It feels like its own dimension that you're uh, participating in. Uh, so that's the conventional, you know, uh, historical approximation. But one of the things that I love about Zen is we're really good with stories, with uh, having stories about how how things came to be and how things are the way they are. So um, this the story about where the Abhidhamsaka Sutra came from uh, is is really fun. In the there's a new translation of the the, the sutra that I'm really excited about uh, by I think their name is Bhikshu Dharma Ditu, and uh, they, they they tell the story as such that the orthodox Buddhist view is that the Abhidhamsaka Sutra was spoken in seven places in nine assemblies, mostly by great bodhisattvas who had gathered around the Buddha shortly after he had achieved his full enlightenment beneath the Bodhi tree, and even before the Buddha began to teach any of the individual liberation sermons in Deer Park near Varanasi, and that uh, Nagarjuna, in around 150 CE, recovered this scripture from the library of the Dragon Palace. And uh, I, I think it was... I think I heard in one version of the story that it was a cave being guarded by dragons that Nagarjuna like recovered it. And that the version that we have, the big 1600 page 39 chapter version is actually the condensed uh, reader's digest version of what it's supposed to be. uh, But that, no, no human being could comprehend that actual text. It would have been too long and too um, <clears throat> in, in, intense for anybody in this world, in this dimension, to uh, absorb in its entirety. Uh, so uh, I think personally I'll say it's, it's a text that doesn't operate like any other text that I've ever encountered. 
it doesn't have a beginning, middle, or an end when you're hanging out with it. It doesn't really live in the realm of like logic or analysis. Uh, at least that's how I interact with it. It 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 feels like you know um, more like a, a a swimming pool that you remind yourself to bathe in occasionally, frequently, hopefully, and it <laughs> and it essentially I think is operates as a mechanism uh, of the ultimate and particular perspectives being interfused through the method of text. Like it feel it feels like an engine almost or like a like a like an organism that like retracts and breathes and moves forward and backward and and breathes with you. It's a verb as a noun. Uh, and, and it's the trying to bring you to uh, to a perspective that maybe we're born with, but is easy to get lost uh, from respecting or um, living into along the way of becoming an adult. Uh, so the, uh, the, where do I go from here? Um, another thing that makes it distinct is that in a lot of, um, Buddhist sutras, the scene that we're given is that it's, uh, Shakyamuni Buddha giving a teaching of some kind in front of an assembly, uh, and we're, when we're reading the sutra, we're watching the uh, this uh, teaching being given. It's a it's a written account of a certain discourse between a disciple of Shakyamuni Buddha uh, asking him a particular question and him giving an answer of some kind. Uh, an obvious example of this would be the Diamond Sutra um, and many of the. Uh, early Buddhist discourses, uh, the Pali um, canon, the, the, the earliest Buddhist scriptures, um, a, lot, a lot of them are uh, what's recorded to be what Buddha said, uh, Shakyamuni Buddha said at uh, different points in time in different contexts to deliver various teachings about what, what it is to be free and how freedom happens and how to, how to uh, move through suffering and not be caught by it. What makes one of the things that makes the Avatamsaka Sutra unique is that it, it doesn't operate like that. Um, there's you you read lots of sections about feels like an infinite amount of different awakening beings that are have different descriptions of what they look like and where they live and they all live at different points of the universe, but, you know, somehow are all hang or have, have congregated in a particular point of the cosmos to hear a particular teaching from one of the awakening beings 
who's speaking, but is speaking through the empowerment of Shakyamuni Buddha. But Shakyamuni Buddha is not the one that's saying it necessarily, but the power of Shakyamuni Buddha is what is motivating this awakening being to speak. Uh, and so the, the, the sutra, one of the things that I, I find really powerful about it is that it, it really um, explores with a lot of wonder and joy about what Buddha is exactly and, uh, what, and, and what, what it's capable of doing. And that, that question is, gets some pretty fantastical responses. Um, and for, if you, for anyone who has been at one of these readings, you'll know that it's a very hypnotic experience uh, reading it. It's, uh, it, there's a lot of repetition, uh, but it, there, it, it goes just, there, in every sentence, and sentences could go on for pages, there's just one small thing will change from one sentence to the next. Uh, and, and so you have to be on your toes when you're reading it because you're not reading the exact same sentence. There's small things that change from sentences to sentence when, they're, when it is being very repetitive, or it can bounce wildly from different, uh, different concepts of what, uh, what, uh, what awakening is. And it's, um, I would say it's main awakening being is uh, Samantabhadra, who is uh, the... The, the bodhisattva of uh, creative energy, of uh, universal good. The, there's, um, uh, it's the, the bodhisattva that Tigan describes in Faces of Compassion as being like a, a modern-day counterpart would be Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, the bodhisattva that's creatively uh, making action happen. Uh, and I think before I go into, uh, I wanted to touch a little bit about, because I haven't heard us talk about it that much uh, so far, uh, is just a couple of um, the uh, ancestors of the tradition that this book created called the, the Hawaiian uh, school tradition. I'm not sure what the right word for it would be, uh, but just to talk about them very briefly and then um, go into a couple of the questions that I have when I read it and, and, uh, and what's, what the text gives uh, in response to it. So going into a couple of readings from, from the text. Uh, before I do that, though, uh, encountering this text is a, a primary, like, Buddhist memory for me of, like, what uh, what made me initially interested in, in doing Zen. And one of the first times I came to uh, Ancient Dragon, uh, I when I went to the back uh, for tea and cookies, and I saw that we had a library, which was very exciting. Um, there was there was one book that just looked 
different than the other ones? Is there one that kind of stood out on the shelf that made me kind of go, what, what is that book? And it felt kind of like that moment in the never ending story where he goes into the bookstore and there's like the one with the, the one book that has the, the snakes eating each other's tail and, and the bookkeeper's like, Oh, you don't want to read that book. But he's like, absolutely nodding at him that that is absolutely the books that, that he wants to read. It kind of felt like that um, when I, when I saw it. Um, so uh, let's see. Where do I do So I want to talk a little bit about this this um, the sutra's connection to uh, Zen. So uh, one of our one of our ancestors is still was was with us. So uh, Tension Rev Anderson really reveres this sutra as perhaps one of the most important foundational texts of Zen, and um, and he claims that. Uh, Dongshan, who is the author of the chant that we just uh, recited, could be viewed as the sixth ancestor of the Huayan school, in addition to being the founder of the Saodong school in China, Saodong being the Chinese word for Soto, which is the branch of Buddhism that we're embodying at the moment. And uh, Dongshan is... uh, has, has been attributed with the concept of the five ranks, which I think could be an extension, a transformation, perhaps, of what's really famous about the Hawaiian school, uh, which is the school that this book is based on, uh, called the Fourfold Dharma Datu. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a scholar uh, about any of this, and so, I mean, I, I would be happy to tag in if there was a scholar uh, with us who knew about, you know, how those things interacted uh, more so than I do, uh, I'd love to hear about it. Is honestly, I haven't finished reading this this book yet. You know, I'm only like it's. I've been reading it for three years, and I'm only about halfway through it. Um, so, I wanted to go through a couple of these ancestors uh, and and just talk about very briefly what they're credited for uh, in, the, in the Hawaiian school uh, and see how that connects to the establishment of Soto. So the first accredited ancestor for Hawaiian is this, uh, this guy, Dushan, Dushan, I think is how it's pronounced. Uh, I'm just going to give some dates. Uh, you know, it helps me with historical context, but I don't know how important it is in terms of memorizing any of this but he was around from 557 to 640 AD. And he's uh, credited for establishing this concept of the fourfold Dharma Datu and wrote some important commentaries uh, known as the discernment of the Dharma Datu of the Hawaiian and the cessation of the contemplation in the five teachings of the Hawaiian that are both in Cleary's, uh, Thomas Cleary, who is the translator of the Avatamsaka Sutra that we read. Uh, he wrote a companion text to it called Entry into the Inconceivable. So those commentaries are in that volume. And then following Dushan is Zhiyan, and he's a, he lived from 602 to 668, and he's a disciple of Dushan who's credited with kind of laying the structural foundation of the, of the Hawaiian school. And already we can see, you can see that the importance of 
transmitting teaching from you know one one warm hand to, to the next and having there be a, a, a disciple that was uh, authorized from the previous teacher, which is a, a strong tradition in Zen that Huayan has this uh, same the same principle, uh, the same tradition. So there's that's that strong connection there, uh, and that's probably due to you know that being uh, an element of Chinese culture uh, in general at that time. And then following Xi'an is uh, probably the most famous disciple, this gentleman named Fazong, and he lived from 643 to 712 AD. And uh, he, uh, he was especially famous for a couple of encounters uh, and stories with Empress Wu uh, in Tang, Tang Dynasty, China. Uh, one of them is that uh, she was asking Fazong what, uh, you know, how, how to explain the uh, concept of Indra's net, uh, which is in, in the Avatamsaka Sutra, the, if, there's a, if there's a net uh, from this, this Indian god, Indra, uh, at each point where the threads come together, uh, they're joined by a jewel that refracts the images of all the other jewels within the net, and that this is the interconnection of all things, the interdependence of all things, and you know, uh, the, the ultimate within the particular, and the particular being uh, in, in the ultimate. And he described this with, uh, by creating a hall of mirrors, placing a, uh, a mirror on the ceiling, one on the floor, in the, in the walls, uh, and in the corner, all the corners of the room. And he put an image of the Buddha in the center with a lamp next to it, and then invited the empress to go into the room. And she could see that uh, one mirror, the, every mirror reflected all the other images of Buddha, and that it demonstrated the complete unobstructed interpenetration of the particular with totality that each one contained all and all contained one. And, uh, and he also, there's a famous center, a famous story of him talking about a, uh, using a golden lion as a metaphor uh, that the, the interpenetration of the universal in particular uh, was like how the gold is the universal principle that pervades the object completely, but that um, it's particularly part of the lion. And you can see it as either gold or a lion, but that the gold, the golden lion is completely gold, and each part is also completely the lion. Um, and that's uh, a particular way of describing the stories from Tigan's article about, uh, about the sutra uh, that you can find on the Ancient Dragon website. Uh, but I also want to take a second to talk about Empress Wu because, you know, I, I think she doesn't get enough celebration as an important, a really important woman in Buddhist history. She's, she's a badass. Uh, she had a 40-year reign in China, and she was the only female monarch of the Tang Dynasty, and she was initially the, the, the mistress of the emperor, um, 
that uh, she was the mistress of the emperor, but then quickly established herself as the power behind the throne. And then once he was no longer emperor, she was, she just became uh, the emperor. And, uh, and so she ruled for 40 years uh, on her own and was a fantastically successful monarch and a, uh, a really important patron of Buddhism in particular. Uh, and let's see. So that's the, so Fazan, also a great translator, commentator. Uh, he kind of almost feels like the Dogen of the Wayan school, where uh, if you want to read, you know, mind-bending analysis of the sutra, he's he's the guy to go to, and is the most famous for, um, you know, establishing the school as probably the most complex and uh, powerful. Uh, philosophical analysis that the that Buddhism uh, Mahayana Buddhism has to offer, and um, his disciples are credited with starting the the Japanese Huayan school uh, and the Korean Huayan school. And he was also a technical innovator. He uh, he he is responsible for what looks like the first woodblock printings in the world. Uh, the earliest ones we can find are from about the year 700 and it's a Durrani chant that he printed onto a woodblock. And so he's basically responsible for inventing books as well, which is pretty sweet. <laughs> um, so he's the third famous Huayan ancestor. Following him is Chengguan, 738 to 839. Uh, he's not a direct disciple of Fazan, but a student of a student of Fazan. And then the fifth famous ancestor of Huayan is Guifan Zongmi, he's 780 to 841, and he's uh, both an ancestor in the Huayan and Chan lineage, and lived during the time of Dongshan. Um, and, and so you can see the connective tissue at that time. Dongshan lived about 800 to 869, so the, the, that's where you really start to see the transformation of the, the Huayan tradition. Um, becoming the basis for the Sofa Zen uh, uh, transmission that we are currently practicing. Uh, for folks like uh, for folks that are checking out the Nagarjuna uh, reading group on third Thursday nights, the first Thursday, I think, of every or the third Thursday of every month, um, the Mahabhyanka teachings are also really strongly connected to the Hawaiian school. Uh, you, you'll see a lot of insistence from Nagarjuna uh, in logical proofs that all things are only things in relationship to other things and that everything is wholly interdependent and empty of self-existence, having no self-nature, and, and that this is a foundational thread that you find both in uh, the teachings of Nagarja, Nagarjuna and um, holds as the, the foundation of the philosophy in the Avatosaka Sutra. Uh, so, you know, this, this sutra is really inspiring and foundational for me because it evokes the experience that interdependence and dharma uh, are not formulas, really. That, and I think this is what makes it ring more resonantly in my heart more than the, uh, a lot of other sutras and teachings that I've encountered, even though those are great. But I think what sets it in contrast a little bit to uh, Nagarjuna 
is that it's not a formula in, in the Avatamsaka Sutra, but it, it's a it's a it's a vision to see. It's a it's music to hear. It's truth to feel. And since our experience is embodied, as Zenji Ritha Manuel says in um, in the book we're reading on Friday mornings, um, our experience is, is sensory. Our, our experience of of being human beings is a sensory experience. And um, and I feel like the Dharma calls on us to act and to interact, and that the Avatamsaka Sutra gives the full context for what that interaction is. Um, and so it's it's you know studying the sutra, reading it, attempting to embody it or do it is one of you know my deepest practice wishes. So um, let's play around a little bit in the actual text. Uh, we've got a, a couple more minutes, I think, um, to, before we want to open it up to questions and, uh, and uh, comments. Uh, I'm actually really glad that David Ray was able to make it today because I was thinking about, um, you know, when we were in front of the 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 building at 4326 North Lincoln that we're exploring uh, purchasing right now, you know, just it came to my head to just ask him, why do we talk so much in Zen? Like, what is the point of talking when, like, it's it's inexpressible, but we seem to have this persistent fascination with trying to talk about what's going on and why do we do that? Um, and and so we, we, we joked around with this premise for a couple of minutes, but... I think one of the things I love about the Avatamsaka Sutra is that it's a, it's a text that takes that question very seriously and, and gives a pretty incredible response. So I'm going to read this from chapter 33, which is the, called The Inconceivable Qualities of Buddhas. And this is like two sentences, but it won't feel like it. <laughs> All Buddhas in their physical, verbal, and mental actions do not create anything have no coming or going, and no abiding. Beyond all categories, they reach the other shore of all things, yet are treasuries of all truths, imbued with immeasurable knowledge, comprehending all kinds of mundane and transmundane things, their knowledge and wisdom unhindered, manifesting immeasurable autonomous spiritual powers, edifying the sentient beings of all realms. All Buddhas know that all things cannot be seen, and neither one and neither one are different, are neither infinite nor finite, are not coming or going, and all are being without inherent nature of their own. Yet they do not contravene the phenomena of the world. They all know or see all things in the midst of non-existence of own being or inherent nature. And being independent of things, they extensively explain things while always abiding steadily in the true, real nature of true thusness. So that's the key part. Uh, they extensively explain things while all, always, always abiding steadily in the real nature of true thusness. And that feels like my experience of Zen very much so. All Buddhas know all times in one time, endowed with pure virtues. They enter the absolute state, yet without any attachment to it in regard to time frames such as day, month, year, eon, becoming, and decomposition. They neither remain within them nor abandon them, yet they are able to show day or night, beginning, middle, and end, one day, one week, a fortnight, a month, a year, a century, an eon, many eons, inconceivable eons, inexpressible eons, 
as far as the eons throughout the future, always turning the wheel of the sublime teaching for the sake of sentient beings, without interruption, without retreating, without pause. All Buddhas always remain in the realm of reality, develop the infinite fearlessness of the Buddhas, as well as their countless, measureless, inexhaustible, ceaseless, boundless, unique, endless, and true intellectual powers, appropriately demonstrating explanation of all expressions and explanation of all principles, delivering untold millions of discourses, using various doctrines adapted to faculties and natures, inclinations and understandings, all ultimately good in the beginning, the middle, and the end. All Buddhas abiding in the pure realm of reality know all things originally have no names, there being no name of past, present, or future, no name of sentient beings, no name of inanimate beings, no name of country or land, no name of non-country, no name of law or non-law, no name of virtue or non-virtue, no name of awakening being, no name of Buddha, no name of sets, no names of nonsense, no name of birth, no name of extinction, no name of existence, no name of non-existence, no name of unity, no name of variety. Because the essential nature of things is inexpressible, all things are without location or position, cannot be explained as assembling or dispersing, as one or as many, no verbalization can reach them, all worlds' words fail. Though the Buddhists speak in various ways, According to conventional usage, they do not cling to anything as mental objects, do not make anything up, and avoid all false conceptual attachments. In this way, they ultimately reach the other shore. So, what I hear in that is that, of course, everything really can't be expressed um, totally in words, but yet it is not beyond words. And it's fun to talk about. And everybody and everything is distinct and everybody's going to need something a little different to get to the other shore. So we keep talking together and uh, and learning from each other, learning from the air and the whizzing, the, the whirring of the projector and the computer and that it's all... The, the function of, uh, of Buddha and, and that it's all teamwork. Uh, and just reading this sutra is like feeling that or uh, feeling that truth in a place that's non-analytic to me that, and, and that makes it for me more powerful than any other Dharma text I've ever read. Um, But again, I haven't finished the book, so I'll keep you posted on how it goes. Um, If I, you know, if if things change, I don't want to give away the ending or anything. I don't know the ending yet. Um, But I'd love to open up to questions or comments. Uh, I think we have time. Perhaps we do. Okay. Thank you for I just have a short comment. You know, feel like I love it when you speak, and, and you know, you're um, a great teacher, and I learned a lot 
in the talk. Nicholas, can you speak up a little bit? Yes, I learned a lot <laughs> in the talk that you just gave. And I feel and it was very inspiring. It was very dense material, but I feel like you, you really embody, you know, the mystery that this text is and, and all of loads and loads of information, you know, that's in there. So uh, I do have a question. I did pop in once uh, on the chapter with the numbers. Like yeah. this, like, and, and it really, I just thought, oh my God, this is driving me nuts. But it, but it really stuck with me. And I think about it a lot. And it really, you know, I thought about it for a while today. That it's just that this, I, I really see how the text does actually embody like the mystery or the infinite. It's, it's sort of a literary, it's a brilliant literary kind of vehicle for, um, you know, embracing uh, things that are kind of beyond words. So I just wondered what, you, what your experience of the numbers chapter was. Very memorable. <laughs> um, it's, there's a there's a chapter, um, yeah, uh, around the middle of the book that starts off so innocently. It just says, you know, oh, the square. If you if you take number one and square it, you get this number, and then if you square that, you get this number, and it just sounds like it's going to be a very innocent little mathematical exercise, but it never stops, and it keeps squaring numbers to powers that you know in your in your and i felt especially bad for the the folks that had to read this because it's one thing to to read it in your mind but to try and say out loud what these numbers are they're like sextillion octillion go gecko plex and you have to like trying to keep track of all that is uh well, give david bray props for being yeah. able to do that very well <laughs> yeah yeah that's why he's our accountant yeah. uh, <laughs> um so uh but yeah there's there's a purpose to it i think and i to me it felt like the purpose of it was to take you from the 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 concept that feels familiar like you can understand you know two squared and then handholds you along the way to the infinite mm-hmm. and, and, and carry you through um, how uh, it's, 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 they're all, it's all part of the same thread, the number that you can comprehend and the number that you can't. And that, that, uh, that's, that's, that's reality is, is the, um, being aware that it's both elements of it are comprehensible and incomprehensible and then asking you the question, what do you do now uh, with, with that as being now that your consciousness or your perception has been expanded, mm-hmm. what, what's important now? You know, um, Shakyamuni Buddha was known for teaching beings according to their um, interests and their talents and their proclivities and had a different teaching for each kind of being. And I I actually know a being who this would be the perfect teaching for. (laughs) You know, my dad, if you want to get his attention, you have to tell him numbers. And that's what he's he's focused his life on is numbers. And um, even I... 
I shared a hotel room with him um, last fall and in the middle of the night woke up to hear him kind of doing mathematical equations like sort of muttering under his breath to like fall asleep. <laughs> so, so this would be the, you know, so, so I think this would be the perfect teaching for some beings to capture their, um, you know, their interest in imagination. And it would really speak to, I think it sounds like it speaks to different people in different ways, but. For sure. Yeah. And there's, there's parts of it that are approachable. There's, there's um, like those tiny sections that work really well. There's like little, Durrani's like one of my there's one that I really like um, as the jewel palaces of the constellations are not swept away by the wind so are awakening beings unaffected while working in the world for being sick like lotuses to which water does not cling and it's like a nice you could, you could put that on like a postcard or something but then there's aspects of it where if you want to you know really play around with infinite numbers that's there for you too. Yeah. Didn't one of the characters actually awaken uh, by the practice of just doing calculations? <laughs> I <Like> hope so. <laughs> I, I was doing a little reading about it today, and uh, you know, if the internet's true, they're, they're, <laughs> that happened. Maybe Tiger knows. Uh, yeah. Um, first of all, thank you, Dylan, for just really full expression of the. Uh, context of this sutra, uh, the sutra is just mind-boggling, and that's part of the point. It's just, it gets you out of our usual way of thinking. But, uh, well, oh, I have to do a public service announcement first, though, just to say that our monthly reading of this sutra is the first Friday evening of every month, 7 p.m. on our website. Uh, Anyway, yeah, but part part of this sutra sounds is mind-boggling and sounds abstract, but it's also very much about being how the practice is expressed practically. So, it, as you were saying, it's about the, the fourfold dharma dhatu, which becomes the soto zen five degrees. is exactly about the integration of ultimate reality or universal reality with the down-to-earth practical stuff. So it, the Tsukiyoshi says we are constantly losing our balance against this background of perfect balance. And this Flower Ornament Sutra, to say the Kiri's translation of it, of Abhatamsaka, is uh, exactly about how we find, how we glimpse the universal, which we do in Zazen, but then also how do we take care of it? In the everyday stuff of the world. So anyway, it's it's as Dylan was saying, it's just a huge um, event, <laughs> and uh, I don't want to give away the ending, Dylan. So I, I won't give you any spoilers. But in the final book, I'll just say to Nicholas that one of the fifty-three bodhisattvas encountered by the pilgrim there is a mathematician. There's also it's a mathematician. what's that? Nicholas just wanted to confirm it was a mathematician. So anyway, thank you, Dylan. Hi, Dylan. Thank you so much. Um, I had another event tonight, but I decided to play hooky from that other event because I really wanted to hear you talk about the Flower Ornament Sutra tonight, and I'm really glad that I did. 
that phrase that you said uh, really is going to stick with me. I think you said it's music that you feel. I love that. You know, the the flower ornament sutra to me like feels like a bloodstream of thought. You know, and then sometimes like sometimes like one of the thought structures of Buddhism will like come in, like the paramitas or the Brahma Viharas, and it's like they just sort of gush in like waves, and then it's like the mind and the heart are just pulsing with that and it's it's kind of it's kind of diametrically different from nagarjuna right i mean nagarjuna is like prickly pine cone pointy headed thought you know being as mean as possible to the opponent and proving that he's totally wrong because everything is empty whereas there's none of that in uh in the flower ornament sutra it's like just, just riding on on waves you know so uh yes yes mathematics and calculation but so much music and, and poetry. If you have thoughts about what it, what it feels like to, 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 to read the Garjana and, uh, and the Flower Ornament Sutra in, in the same month, I'd love to hear that because it's, for me, it's just, it really is some kind of this, it's like a schizophrenic ping pong. It's very exciting. Uh, I'll just say really briefly, I love them in dialogue with each other because like the, the they're 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 a perfect kind of yin, yin and yang for each other in, in, in my eyes where reading the the Abhita Saka is like you know kind of sailing on the curling arm of the you know the Milky Way galaxy or something and you just you swim around and you swim around and you you start wondering like what are we even what is this even talking about? Like you you, you just get lost in what it and just uh you get lost in what it's saying but it's hitting somewhere in the back of your head uh, at the same time, whereas Nagarjuna is very precise and short and effective. And like a, like that's the needle point in Zazen, you know, that's the, like goes right to the, you know, here, here's, here's the, you know, um, it's like a, it's like a, yeah, like a needle right to the, right to the heart of it. Um, and so, it, it, for me, it kind of offers a little bit of relief, if, you know, of uh, stepping stepping away from the jam band of the Avatam Saka Sutra to, you know, listening to the punk song that is the, the Mahajamaka uh, from Nagarjuna. Wait. We should probably wrap soon. Okay. I don't know if someone would care to offer a final comment, but we're more or less at time. Thank you. I didn't know other final comment. I had a cute story. Um, so uh, this is the story of how the, the Flower Ornament Sutra began. Um, so three years and some odd ago, I was starting to, you know, uh, dip around in the sutra. Um, and I happened upon the, it was one of the chapters I was naming every single one of like all these hundreds and hundreds of different bodhisattvas. And I saw in that list of them, um, one of the names of, uh, of someone here at that ancient dragon, uh, like one of the, the bodhisattvas. And I said, Oh, wow. I've, I've heard this name before. And it's here in the sutra. Um, and, and I wrote to Tiger and I said, I've, I've seen this name and now it's, it's, uh, it's from the, it's from the sutra. Uh, I, I, you know, it's on page some 300 something or something. 
and um, and it was actually my Dharma brother who I was about to be um, uh, um, doing lay ordination with, which I think is why it stuck out to me because you know, or we had just done Dharma. Uh, the lay ordination, obviously, that I wouldn't know his name beforehand. So we had we had just done Dharma, uh, the lay ordination, and I saw his name in there, and uh, and uh, and then uh, Tigan really encouraged us once I had found this little Easter egg uh, to to um, start uh, start a group like Jason and I to start reading every month, and it's been going on ever since. What was the name? Oh gosh, I'm gonna be so embarrassed that I forget it right now. It's uh, it's it was for Tigan. Do you do you remember? Possibly. Uh, not offhand. It's in the Doksan room in a big box, along with all with all the other names of people of names that given in lay ordination. I think it's Forest of Creativity or something. Oh, that's right. I just saw it yesterday. Yes, yeah. Forest. Oh, that's one of his names. Yeah, Forest of Creativity. That's yeah. right. 